You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Let me tell you about an uncomfortable truth that is buried beneath the media narrative of the competition between China and the United States. Beyond the military threats and posturing around Taiwan, beyond the trade war and tech war narrative, it's older than the establishment of the Global Times or Fox News, and it existed decades before China put an astronaut into orbit, and news hacks wheeled out descriptions of a quote new space race. It's the fact that scientists in China and the United States have been cooperating. They've been collaborating. They've been working together for the betterment of humanity. And before you shout a four-letter word at me that Rupert Murdoch stole from Erica Badu and weaponized for a new culture war, this is not some sort of idealistic notion I'm talking about. There is a formal agreement between China and the U.S. to work together, and its name is pretty straightforward. It's the U.S.-China Science Agreement. This agreement gets renewed every couple of years. And its renewal this year, at the end of this month, comes at a time when both China and the U.S., the entire world, face the existential threat of a climate emergency. Welcome to the Inside China podcast and our last episode in our series on China, the U.S., and choke point politics. My name is Jasmine Se, speaking to you from our studios here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And with me is Jared Watt. Hey, Jasmine. So, Jared, we've been to Beijing, Washington, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. Where are we headed next? Well, Jasmine, we're going to speak to someone we've heard from previously on this podcast, but who we've never actually met in person. I'm talking about our colleague from New York, Kushbu Razdan. She's been reporting on this impending science agreement deadline on SCMP.com, and we're also going to speak to someone whose columns and opinion pieces I've been reading for years. Particle physicist Yang Yang Chang. She's got a perspective on the relationship between Chinese and American scientists that is, let's just say, in-depth and educational is an understatement. But first, I want to get us started with a bit of time travel. Time travel. Indeed, I want to do something we've never done before on the Inside China podcast. I want you to hear a short clip from our archive, which is sadly not available on Spotify or iTunes. This is an Inside China episode we published in the year 2019, and you're about to hear the fabulous Laurie Chen taking us on a journey to where the U.S.-China science agreement started. It was a different time. Indeed, it was a different paradigm. Let me take you back to January 29, 1979. For the first time in American history, the Chinese national anthem was played on the lawn of the White House. It marked the arrival of China's Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping for a historic meeting with the then U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Vice Premier Deng, Madam Cho Lin, distinguished visitors from the People's Republic of China. Before the meeting, the two of them stood together on a dais to make this public address. We expect that normalization of relations between our two countries will help to produce an atmosphere in the Asia and Pacific area in which the right of all peoples to live in peace will be enhanced. If you Google Deng and Carter, 1979, you'll most probably see the famous image of Deng Xiaoping and his delegation wearing cowboy hats at a Texas rodeo. 
What you probably won't see or read is that Carter had already agreed to quietly accept a group of leading scientists from China to study in the US with the hope that they would help rebuild China's economy after a decade of turbulent cultural revolution. This educational exchange would play a fundamental role in China's technological transformation and its relationship with the US. And just like that, here we are back in the year 2023. Kashmir Razdan normally covers US-China geopolitics from our New York bureau, but we're most fortunate to have her here in person in our Hong Kong newsroom and podcast studios. Kashmir, welcome. Thank you, Jared. Hello, Jasmine. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, let's talk about your story on scnp.com. It was the one that alerted us to this impending deadline for this agreement. In fact, when this podcast publishes, it will be less than 10 days for the US to renew this 44-year-old agreement signed by Jimmy Carter and Dong Xiaoping way back in 1977, known simply as the US-China Science and Technology Agreement. We've heard how this agreement helped kickstart China's tech industry and helped it develop its science and technology, including the Three Gorges Dam project. But is it all about China and what China gets out of it? Can you take us through some of the benefits to both the US and China stemming from this agreement you found researching this story? Sure. So the general mindset in Washington when we talk about U.S.-China science and technology agreement is that it was China that benefited more. But if we look at the research that's been recently published by different think tanks, there are experts saying that if the U.S. decides to renew this agreement, it would be in clear U.S. interest to do that. Because over the years, both sides have collaborated in terms of health issues, pollution. When it came to a birth defect study that started in 1985, both sides benefited from it. You know, people living in the U.S. and China both benefited, but not just them, but entire world. You know, these studies helped people around the world. Then there was a study which was a U.S.-China influenza cooperation, which it was initiated in 2004, that helped basically uh, the Chinese side to increase the surveillance of flu. And it helped not just U.S. and China, it also helped the WHO. And it in turn help the entire world. So it's not just about these two superpowers, these two global powers, emerging scientific powers, collaborating with each other. This agreement is more than that. This is not just about these two parties. This is more about global good. So at a time when there is a lot of hostilities on both sides, this agreement is something which gives you a framework to collaborate on things that are just not related to US and China. This is not just about these two parties. This is more than just that. We are now recognizing that science and technology is a critical asset. Now nations are now, you know, gradually they have recognized, oh, this is my technology, not your technology. Why should I share it with you? But these agreements, we will see that such collaborations have helped the whole world evolve and our lives have, you know, become better over the years. So that's what I'm hearing from experts, uh, people who are researching on how this agreement really helped, not not just U.S. and China, but the entire world. Kashbu, it's quite interesting that your report talks about Beijing showing willingness to renew or even rework this agreement. And I'm thinking about its cold shoulder to cooperate with the U.S. on things like climate change or communication for high levels of defence. 
Take us through what you heard or what you learned from the Chinese side about renegotiating this agreement. So I spoke to the spokesperson of the Chinese embassy in Washington a few days back when I was working on this story, and he told me that it was a year back when the Chinese side actually approached the U.S. side to say, hey, uh, you know, uh, we have 12 months left, so why don't you, you know, sit down with us and we talk about how we can renew, rework, or renegotiate, or whatever, you know, uh, the world is changing. There are new realities of the world. There are new realities of the bilateral relationship between U.S. and China. So why why don't we sit down and have a chat about what are your intentions toward this agreement? So the spokesperson told me that so far, the U.S. side, as far as the Chinese side knows, is that they are still deliberating. The U.S. side is still thinking whether they should go ahead with this uh, renewal, whether they should renegotiate it, rework it. And it's also important to note that over the years, both sides have also worked on annexes, more importantly on something like intellectual property. So during my research, I found out that not just, you know, research and agreements, but also how to improve this agreement. So there were concerns about intellectual property. So there have been changes in this agreement related to intellectual property. So this agreement shows that the two sides who are very unfriendly to each other right now can actually work on things, something like climate change or influenza or health. So the Chinese side told the U.S. side that we are willing to renew, renegotiate, rework. And over the years, like we have worked on changes to this agreement, we can do that again. So the Chinese side says that they are willing, but the State Department, which is actually responsible for renegotiating and, you know, making the final decision, has not come up with any answer. They're tight-lipped on it. They told me that they will not comment on any potential international negotiation or their internal deliberations on any potential international negotiations. So very, uh, very, it's a word salad, but it says a lot about they don't want to talk about it right now. Well, Kushbu, what actually happens if the agreement lapses and if the U.S. and China don't agree to renew this? What are the downsides to it? So this treaty actually provides for a government-to-government cooperation. But it's not just government-to-government cooperation. It also provides a framework for academic and, and corporate interaction. So if this agreement is not in place, if it lapses on August 27, then Definitely experts are saying that, you know, scientists and corporate companies can find a different way to interact with each other, but it will be a lot difficult. This actually facilitates that interaction. And given the negative attitude that we see towards each other between U.S. and China, it will be even more difficult for these two communities on both sides to interact and share, say, for example, data on, on some health issue, which, which could be crucial to finding a resolution to something. So that would be difficult. And then it will also be very symbolic because at a time when the Biden administration is putting export restrictions on certain semiconductor technologies, investment in some sensitive technologies, there are parallel efforts by the Biden administration to find common ground for cooperation. You, you saw different uh, Biden officials, you know, making a beeline for China. So it will also compromise and complicate these efforts 
it will send out a message that no cooperation is actually possible and all these efforts are futile because you know it will talk about the mutual trust deficit there is no trust even like some simple issues where we can actually sit down and cooperate like climate change and health one expert told me that it will be a mistake to not renew this because when we say china benefited more he said that when this agreement was signed china was actually not very advanced scientifically so china had more to learn than the us and the us had more to offer but over the years china had emerged as a scientific superpower so the exchange will be to way now and the us will have more to learn from china so if you don't renew this agreement or you know you let it die then it's america it's the us that loses on a lot of new opportunities and what it can learn from an emerging superpower like china Kasper, it's very interesting you talk about this this attitude, which really speaks to the broader narrative we hear coming from the Biden administration here when with its investment bans, its semiconductor bans saying, okay, then you've taken all this knowledge, this technology even from the US and you are getting much bigger benefit than we are. And, and as you say, that is a somewhat fallacious argument given that if you think about where China was in 1979, nowhere near where the US was. Here we are in the year 2023, we're seeing the US considering scientific technology cooperation as a military economic threat. What are the options here? Is it as simple as the US cancelling or renewing this agreement? What happens next? What can possibly happen next? So the experts who are closely monitoring what happens next they basically say that the main option before the US is to renew it for short term maybe renew it for 2 years and then over those 2 years you sit down with the chinese side and say oh these are scientific technologies that we don't want to share these are some of the things that we do not want to talk about but here are certain things that we can actually cooperate and collaborate on but there's a very fine line because the us accuses china of military uh, civilian fusion and they say that china applies all technology to increase its military might so again there is a trust is deficit even if the state department decides that they want to rework it it would be a long shot because it will take a long for these two sides to agree on certain things that okay this is an area in which i'm willing to share my information because in washington the rhetoric is so anti china if you agree to negotiate if you agree to even rework forget renewal you are basically branded as someone who is benefiting china or you are soft toward china and this could be a political suicide for the democrats and especially for joe biden who really wants to run another term and wants to become the president for a second time so it's a very delicate situation for biden administration if they agree to renew or rework it will be politically damaging it could be politically damaging but if they don't then the us at large will lose out on a lot of opportunities that chinese scientists and chinese talent and where china stands right now in terms of science and technology can offer to the us so kushbu this agreement expires august 27 it's coming up really soon who are you chasing down to get a comment about this and what are you watching for 
I'm chasing the State Department, which is responsible for making a final decision here. They have been very tight-lipped about it. They don't want to talk about what their intentions are, what they're thinking, but there are internal deliberations going on. They have less than 10 days, like we've already said, and this agreement, like you said, expires on August 27. What's really interesting is that on August 27, Gina Raimundo, the Commerce Secretary, is also expected to visit Beijing in a series of meetings that we have seen between Biden officials coming to China and, you know, trying to find common grounds and areas of cooperation. And it will be very kind of sad if Gina Raimundo lands in Beijing and then this agreement expires between the both sides on August 27 at the same time. So it will be symbolic. It will be damaging. It will have a, a larger impact on the bilateral ties. So I think this is what I'm looking ahead in the coming week as this agreement you know, approaches its expiry date. Well, we know just how much cachet Beijing puts in symbolism uh, of meetings in this kind of high-level diplomacy. Kushbi Razdan, you have a very busy 10 days ahead of you, including a, a long flight back to New York. So thanks for dropping in on us here. We will, of course, look for your reports on scmp.com. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thanks, Jared. Yang Chung is a particle physicist who has worked on the Large Hadron Collider for more than a decade, and most recently at Cornell University. She's also a research scholar at Yale Law School, where she focuses on the development of science and technology in China, as well as US-China relations. But she's also a very prominent columnist, and she's just won a Soper Award for excellence in opinion writing. Her words have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Wired magazine, just to name a few. Yang Yang Cheng, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Can I start by asking, it's been 44 years since the U.S.-China science agreement was signed. What's the state of science cooperation between the U.S. and China right now in 2023? I think the state of U.S.-China scientific cooperation at the moment is facing significant challenges. But I would like to qualify these challenges in two ways. One is, I think there are a lot of tensions between the national governments, but that is not the full scale of the context. And an analogy I would make is, even though there are a lot of tensions between the two countries or these rhetoric about the trade war, U.S.-China trade has actually risen during the pandemic, right? And so similarly, scientific collaboration is still happening at a very high pace. And there are some markers where there may still be increases, but it depends on how one measures it. So that is one important context. Another context is I think even 44 years is a pretty short time scale compared with a lot of these issues that concerns geopolitics. And I think it is also important to place U.S.-China scientific collaboration and U.S.-China relations into a longer time scale and see a lot of these current trends are not necessarily new. That's really interesting. And you previously wrote back in 2022, that the US and China are, quote, driven by the desire for power, and they see science and technology as means to achieve it, unquote. That statement would appear to run very true to this day with the US escalating its tech war, you know, with last week's announcement from the Biden administration targeting investment in China's advanced technologies because they pose a threat. But we're not hearing from the scientists. Yang Yang Chang, can you tell us, as a scientist, what do you make of this new escalation in this attempt to limit 
China's advancement in technology? So I think one way to think about this is to delineate different types of rhetoric, because what we are hearing now here in the U.S., there are a lot of different reasons being thrown around and a lot of times being conflated together in terms of why there are certain restrictions that are necessary in terms of technological export or scientific collaboration with Chinese entities. That ranges everything from military strength, from quote-unquote national security, to economic competition, to human rights. And so I think scientific collaboration, like any kind of collaboration, is not a uniform good. It's just like scientific research is not a uniform good. It's very important to understand what kind of research is being done, what it is being used for, who benefits and who bears the cost. And what I'm finding very alarming in a lot of these current tensions is the rhetoric and the framework is very nationalistic. And the basic argument is when there are indeed harmful uses of emerging technologies, the argument is not to restrict its use, but to restrict its users. It's basically saying, I do not want you to have this because this can kill, but I would like to keep it for myself to have the ability to potentially kill you. And that obviously is logically inconsistent and I would say morally indefensible. It's an interesting coincidence that on the same day the U.S. announced its latest ban on American investments in Chinese tech, you also published a column on Wired and wrote, quote, the tint of racialized suspicion has seeped into anything made in China, unquote. Can you just unpack what does this statement mean? So the column I published, of course, like as, as people who write for, uh, for, for for the public, you don't really know when the article is going to come out. So, so some of the timing was um, purely coincidental. Um, but it is an, a very current topic. And what I was arguing in the article was basically, uh, and I think in recent years, the image or like the face of foreign espionage in the U.S. has become racialized and ethnicized as Chinese. And what I uh, was giving these examples is a lot of things have the potential to be used for information or intelligence gathering. However, what we are seeing in a broad rhetoric here in the U.S. is these things seem to be only raising alarm in a specific way when the ownership or the user is Chinese. And so whether it's different types of technologies or equipment or software apps, of course, if there is a certain vulnerability that is open to intelligence gathering, that is an inherent problem. It's not something determined by its ownership. And then um, up to things like even the purchase of farmland or the use of cargo cranes at ports, when it's being operated by a Chinese entity, it starts to raise alarms and being talked about as an intelligence threat. And so so that was where I was um, trying to gather these current phenomenon and then place that into a historical context that one can trace these roots of these racial stereotypes to centuries old perceptions of Chinese people or people from quote unquote the Orient as being inscrutable, as being mysterious and untrustworthy. And then added with the context of um, economic competition and U.S.-China relations in the current context. Well, that's fascinating. And I'm curious, you speak about, you know, that long history of racialized relations between, you know, the U.S. and folk from China. But 44 years ago, it was a different paradigm. It was one of 
collaboration. It was one of the US actively reaching out to bring you know, scientists from mainland China to come and train. And that started off a whole series of you know events that we've documented in the previous podcast. But I, I'm wondering, what's the stories that aren't being told about the benefits of this agreement that's coming up to 44 years and may or may not continue? What are the stories we've missed out on? What are the things that people should know about the benefits of this agreement? So I think here um, it is important to point out a few things with regards to this agreement, right? It was signed between Deng Xiaoping and President Carter in 1979 as the first agreement the two governments signed after the normalization of relations. Um, however, these 44 years was not uninterrupted. So this agreement had indeed lapsed on first was in the immediate aftermath of the Tiananmen crackdown when it was lapsed for an extended period of time. And when it was renewed in April of 1991, it was renewed with added provisions for intellectual property protection. And then later on, uh, more recently, uh, in a more recent current context, it was allowed to lapse briefly at the end of 2017. And then it was renewed at the beginning of 2018 with the agreement backdated to cover the period when it briefly lapsed. And then it was renewed for only a few months, twice, before it was finally renewed again for the five years that we are talking about now. And so there have been tensions and ups and downs in U.S.-China relations, even within this 44-year time frame, related to different types of domestic and international events. And so... Even if this agreement doesn't come to a renewal at the end of August, it's not necessarily the end of the road. There are ways to mitigate that and there are still ways to renew it later and such. And I think what is probably more important than renewal of this agreement itself is what this difficulty in the current moment signifies, right? what it indicates in terms of how both countries are thinking about the role of science and technology in their own national uh, strength and in their societies and what are the roles of international collaboration in this context. Can I just follow that up? From someone who's neither American nor Chinese, I sometimes get the feeling that both these governments carry on like they're the only governments on earth who might you know, see the benefits from science. Do you think that's missing from this narrative, this whole US versus China zero-sum kind of competition? What's missing from this discussion about the benefits of scientific collaboration? Uh, so first off, I would like to quantify this as scientific collaboration, as I mentioned earlier, is not universally good. There are benefits and there are harms and there are uh, moral complexities. And none of these is exclusive to any single country or is subject to any single political system. And with that in mind, on uh, the second point is when you, as you said, right, the world is not just the US and China. So sometimes when I get quite frustrated by these uh, casual mentioning of quote unquote US-China decoupling, it fundamentally misses the point that both the United States and China are integral players in global systems, that they are, their connections are not just 
primary, but also there are many secondary and, and further layers of ties that it is not just impossible to disentangle. But seeing that as a possibility reflects a fundamental misunderstanding as if China is some kind of external other that is self-contained, that can be separated and understood or dealt with in isolation. And the third point is, as you mentioned, scientific collaboration, its harms cannot be contained by any national border and is not subject to any specific political system. And in terms of its benefits, I actually think the pandemic gives a very great example when a lot of these discussions center around IP protection and such. But I might say, for example, what is the authority of a state built on stolen land and with stolen labor to litigate issues of stolen IP, right? By saying this, I'm not dismissing existing issues with regards to theft or the real harms it may cause, but I need to point out the fact that property is socially constructed which includes intellectual property. So who actually reaps the benefits from the current intellectual property regimes is a question that needs to be asked in the broader context of scientific collaboration, how the results are being shared and whose agendas or whose futures are being prioritized. That's many thought-provoking questions over there. Um, Can I also ask you a hypothetical question? If the U.S. Mm -hmm. and China didn't view scientific advancement as a zero-sum game, what kind of collaborations would you want to see happening between U.S. and Chinese universities, research institutes? What kind of potential can be unlocked? So a lot of times I face questions when the authoritarian nature of the Chinese political system is being essentialized. And so I would get questions like whether or not a scientist in a liberal democracy can cooperate with colleagues in an authoritarian regime. And I think the question by itself is not invalid. There, 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 there is a point there. However, it mistakes the nature of science and technology that a lot of the harms are not exclusive to any political system. And also scientists' relationship with the state is not just conditioned on whether the country is governed by a liberal democracy or by an authoritarian regime. What I've seen from colleagues in a lot of different countries of different levels of economic development and with different political systems and legal histories is they often have very similar mindsets that they are intrigued by questions of intellectual curiosity about nature, and they would choose to protect their relationship with their most important sources of funding, which is often the national government, and they would tell themselves that their work is somehow apolitical or that they do not have enough power or agency to determine the end use of their work. And I think these are all understandable, but deeply problematic. So I think on a university and an individual level, I would like to see scientists from the US and China be able to come together and reflect and I mean critically reflect on the scientists' relationship with the state, the moral complicities, and the benefits and harms and the social cost of their work. And I would like to add an addendum to this answer in terms of I do have an answer um, on, on a more national or governmental level. 
between the U.S. and China, because that's what I thought on a lot of times when when the country is being used as a subject, that is what is being implied. And I think what the U.S. and the Chinese government can actually do for the good of our species, for humanity, in terms of science and technology collaboration, is not just in terms of new research, but in terms of the more equitable distribution of the results of the research. There are fundamental rethinkings of how the cost of the research and the benefit of the research needs to be distributed equitably around the world. And this is an urgent question that is being exposed in the course of the pandemic in terms of disease prevention and treatment, but also in terms of different technologies to mitigate the effects of climate change. And these are global problems that cannot be solved by any country alone, and its harmful effects cannot be contained by any political borders. And so it makes really no sense for any national government or for any individual entity to hoard these kinds of technology. And there is no real benefit to this other than maybe like a corporate spreadsheet or a shareholder prize or something. And so I think this is something that do need government intervention. And it's something that I hope the two most powerful governments on this planet can find some common ground on. Yang, you raise really pertinent points there. And I'm reminded of a story that from the very beginnings of the pandemic, people forget the story of Professor Eddie Holmes from Sydney working with his colleague at Fudan University and tweeting the genome of the COVID-19 virus, which led to the design and development of vaccines. That's a good news story. You know, that was a crucial moment for humanity. And again, you point towards the challenges of climate change, you know, food chain collapse, all of these kinds of things. But where do you find hope in getting the good news story out about science amongst this dominant kind of geopolitical narrative? I myself find a lot of hope by going to history. And so in part of our conversation today has a historical context with regards to a 44-year-old agreement, right? But if we go back even further, if we look at the Shanghai communique of 1972, the first item where both sides agreed on was the mutual benefits of exchange and science and education top that list, followed by culture and sports and things like journalism, things like that, right? And if we go back even further, say during World War II, there were a lot of science and educational exchange between between China under the nationalist government and the United States. And then even before that, there is the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship. And if we go all the way back to the 19th century, to 1868, the Burlingame Treaty, which has a provision for educational exchange between then the Qing Empire and the United States, and with an emphasis on science and technology for the development of the Qing China's needs at the time. And so one could say that Uh, science and technology exchange between the U.S. and China is as old as U.S.-China relations. On the other hand, with this long history, we also see that these exchanges were facilitated under specific domestic and geopolitical contexts. In the 19th century, it was the United States as a relatively young republic trying to distinguish itself from European empires in its relationship with Qing China. And then later on, at the beginning of the 20th century with the Boxer Indemnity Scholarships, it was in the context of the Chinese Exclusion Act that there were widespread boycotts of 
of American-made goods in China at the time, as it was trying to improve U.S.-China relations. And then, of course, the geopolitics of World War II facilitated a lot of the scientific and educational exchange between nationalist China and the United States. And the scientific cooperations in the 1970s that our conversation starts with, of course, was partly conditioned on the dynamics of the Cold War and the Sino-Soviet split. And so a lot of the tensions we're seeing now are not necessarily new. And what facilitated the agreements and what placed these challenges are these cyclic events that are being driven by greater forces. But it also means that the path is not predetermined. It is contingent and it can be reversed. And so, so that is where I find hope. Yang Yang Chang, you've been most generous with your time. We are really, really uh, thankful. Where can we find you on the platform formerly known as Twitter? Because I know you're quite prolific upon it. Yes. Well, I'm at Yang Yang underscore Chen at the site formerly known as Twitter. And I'm also an academic, so you can also find my work on, on Yale's website. Yang Yang Chang, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I really didn't expect to end up in the Qing dynasty when we started on this series. No, Jasmine, neither did I. And we didn't even get to talking about the, shall we say, interesting fusion of science, technology and geopolitics that's well underway with the moon missions from Russia, from China, from the US that are happening well now and over the next few years. Nor did we mention the importance of the world's number one manufacturer of high-end semiconductors and the fact that it's in a place called Taiwan. And what might happen to the world's economy if, and I say if, some sort of military conflict begins, either by accident or design. You know, I was also wondering about the timing of Biden's announcements, given the venture capital controls came exactly one year after the CHIPS Act. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about that as well. Is there like a timetable for this? Well, we know most of next year is going to be the long road of nominating both the Democrat and Republican candidates for the U.S. election in November. But have a guess, what's happening on August 19th next year? I am well out of my depth on dates for the American political cycle. No idea. What is it? August 19th is the start of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Wow, I can't imagine what kind of moment that would present for a sitting US president wanting to show he's tough on China, as they say. Look, we'll finish this episode and this four-episode series the way we started with a reminder for you, our dear listener, that this is a developing story. And you should always be checking in on scmp.com for the latest news and analysis, including all our colleagues you've heard speaking in these episodes. My name is Jared Watt. And I'm Jasmine Seh. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>